Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're ready to uh, focus on His Word, ready to concentrate. That means we need to be uh, filled with the Spirit. It is God the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, who teaches us, who illuminates our thinking to understand His Word. And when we are, whenever we sin, whenever we commit any sin, we are instantly out of fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, so that uh, it is necessary to recover that, that filling of the Spirit. Now, that's not a difficult process. It's just based on grace, as everything else in the Christian life is. God has made a perfect provision in that all sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. Therefore, all we have to do to deal with uh, any post-salvation sin is to simply uh, admit or acknowledge our sin to Him. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to forgive us from all unrighteousness. That means that uh, we may only remember one or two sins, but all other sins, known and unknown, uh, those that were committed intentionally, those that were unintentional, whatever they might be, all other sins are forgiven because they have already been paid for by Christ on the cross. So we always began with a few moments of silent prayer to give you that opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to confess your sins in the privacy of your priesthood in silent prayer to God the Father. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have as believers to gather together this day in order to worship you, in order to study your word and to learn what you would have to uh, say to us, what you would have to teach us this morning, recognizing that it is the study of your word that is the highest form of worship, that we may align our thinking to your thinking, that we may understand uh, what you have revealed to us, that we may apply these things consistently in our lives under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit in order that we may grow on the basis of what we have learned, that we may grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we uh, gather together this morning, we recognize that we live in a world where there is tremendous instability right now, where there is the, the threat of war with Iraq, there's the ongoing war against terrorism, and so we continue to pray for our national leaders. We continue to pray that you would give them wisdom and guidance in the execution of this war. And Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, that we might continue to be a, a place 
from which the, your word can go forth, from which missionaries can uh, proceed to carry the gospel throughout the world, and that we might be a nation that can continue to be uh, steadfast in our support of, uh, of Israel, even though they are not a regenerate nation now, even though they are a nation in apostasy, they are still your people, and you still have a future for them, and the promise from Abraham continues, and that is that those who bless Israel will be blessed. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to protect us as a nation, give our, our national leaders, military and political, uh, the wisdom they need, the information they need to properly uh, execute this war. Now, Father, we pray for us as we come before your word today that we would have the uh, courage, the spiritual courage, and the objectivity to recognize where these principles need to apply in our own lives and that we might have the courage to apply them. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in the last few weeks, we have been discussing a subject which is uh, important, one that is uh, touches most everyone at some point or another, and that's the area of uh, love, sex, marriage, and divorce. So let's uh, we'll continue our study this morning. So to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Today we will begin in verse 17. Now before I get started, I ran across a little illustration this last week, a little historical illustration of a positive volition. Now we live in a nation where we have tremendous freedom, and that freedom is, uh, is recognized and guaranteed by our Constitution, and it is the freedom of worship. It is not the distorted doctrine of the separation of church and state, it is, as it is often stated today, but is a recognition, according to the Constitution, that the federal government has no right to impose or establish any religious beliefs, and that's quite a different subject. This country was always founded on a solid understanding of certain Judeo-Christian principles, and that does not mean that everybody who was involved in the founding of this country was necessary, a, necessarily a Bible student or understood the word, but that was the cultural context in colonial America. And the stage was set for what took place in 1776 by a spiritual occurrence that took place in the 1740s that's known as the Great Awakening. Now, in the Northeast, in New England, that Great Awakening was spurred on by the preaching of one of America's foremost preachers by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who pastored a church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And it was also spurred on by the preaching of a British evangelist by the name of George Whitfield. And during that time, Whitfield uh, visited Edwards at his church in Northampton, and afterwards he left uh, Northampton and came south to Connecticut and preached in Middletown. And there is a reference to this in the writing of one of the uh, uh, people at that time, uh, which gives us some ideas of... Uh, what positive volition is all about. See, um, sometimes we get so distracted by the cares of everyday life, especially now as we get ready to go into a winter season where there might be a little snow and ice, we come to easily find ways to get distracted, and somehow uh, we don't quite make it to Bible class. We find all kinds of reasons and excuses not to be consistent. So this is, uh, but that was not the attitude of the people who founded this nation. 
So let me read this. Two days after parting from Jonathan Edwards and his father, Whitfield came to Middletown. His meeting there was not unusual in any way, for he merely says of it, uh, preached to about 4,000 people at 11 o'clock. Now, we're talking 1740s. He's got 4,000 people. That's the first clue that people came from uh, all around. But one of his hearers penned a description which shows how the mere news that he was to preach created a sudden excitement and brought almost the whole countryside hurrying to hear him. The writer was an unlettered farmer named Nathan Cole, and this is what he wrote. Now, it pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land, and I longed to see and hear him. And then one morning, all of a sudden, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield is to preach at Middletown this morning at 10 o'clock. I was in my field at work, and I dropped my tool that I had in my hand. Notice he didn't even take the time to go put it up in the shed. He just dropped it in the field and ran home and through my house and bade my wife to get ready quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown. And I ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing I should be too late to hear him. And I took up my wife and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. And when my horse began to get out of breath, I would get down and put my wife on the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me, except I bade her. And so I would run until I was almost out of breath and then mount the horse again fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon, for we had 12 mi miles to ride double in little more than an hour. I saw before me a cloud or fog I first thought, thought of from the great river. It must be over the uh, Connecticut River. But as I came nearer the road, I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder. And I presently found out it was the rumbling of horses' feet coming down the road, and this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the running of horses' feet, it arose some rods into the air over the tops of the hills and trees. When I came within about 20 rods of the road, I could see men and horses slipping along. It was like a steady stream of horses, and their riders scarcely a horse more than his length behind another. I found a vacancy between two horses to slip in my horse and my wife. Um, it's difficult to read. He writes in a very... I'm, modernizing a lot of it as I read. Uh, and my wife said, Law, our clo clo clothes will be all spoiled. See how they look. Um, my wife said, said, Law, our clothes will be all spoiled. See how they look. And I guess they were getting all dusty and dirty with all the uh, traffic on the road. And when we got down to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or 4,000. And that's a Whitfield would address crowds... Franklin, Benjamin Franklin once observed an evangelistic meeting with Whitfield in Philadelphia, and he stood on the edge of the crowd and estimated the crowd would be between 15 and 20,000, and Whitfield was addressing the crowd without benefit of microphone or PA system or bullhorn. He just, I've seen pictures of him. He was a huge barrel-chested man with, with an incredible uh, physical ability to project his voice. So there were three or four thousand, and when I looked towards the great river, I saw ferry boats running swift forward and backward. When I see Mr. Whitfield come, come up upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelic, a young, slim, slender youth before thousands of people, and with a bold, undainted countenance in my hearing how, how God was with him everywhere as he came along, it, it solemnized my mind and put me in a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God, 
and a sweet solemnity sat upon his brow, and my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound, and by God's blessing my old foundation was broken up, and I saw my own righteousness would not save me. The narrator goes on to say that Cole describes himself as one who until this time was an Arminian and intended to be saved by his own works. After hearing Whitfield, however, he came under a severe sense of sin, which continued for two years and then issued in a glorious conversion. He left the uh, Old Light Church and became an active member, a worker in a New Light congregation, and the difference between the Old Lights and the New Lights where the New Lights believed you have to have a, a regeneration before you were saved. You couldn't just ride along on the coattails of your parents. Remember, at that time, most of them were Presbyterian or Congregational, so they held to an infant baptism. And if you were baptized as an infant, that meant that you were part of the covenant. Uh, remember, they're all uh, into covenant theology, that you were a child of the covenant, and therefore there were many who thought simply because they had been baptized as an infant, they were all automatically saved. And that had become sort of the staid position of the Old Light Church. So he left his Old Light Church and became an active worker in a New Light congregation formed in Middletown. So that gives us an idea of what positive volition in a country looks like. People just coming, walking, running, riding their horse as fast as they can from miles around and uh, not letting the cares of life distract them at all from hearing the preaching and teaching of God's Word. So just keep that in mind this this uh, year when you wake up on a Sunday morning and you're up too late the night before and it's cold outside and snowy and, and you have to decide whether or not you're going to drive 15 or 20 minutes to get to class. Okay, last time we looked at 1 Corinthians 7 and Paul addressing the issue of marriage. Now we have to go back and understand the context of this chapter. As I have stated again and again, this is not Paul's chapter on marriage. Ephesians 5 is Paul's, Paul's positive statement on marriage. Here Paul is dealing with some specific problems and questions that have been raised by the Corinthian congregation as indicated by a shift in tone at the beginning of, of uh, this particular chapter where he says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote me, they have written him with several questions, and apparently the first question they write has to do with the proper role of sex. It always seems that, that people just seem... Uh, very concerned about uh, spirituality and sex. And as I stated when we covered the first verse, it's poorly punctuated in most English translations, and it's hard to uh, properly interpret. And that's the statement at the second half of verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And now, if you see that as Paul speaking, then you get the idea that somehow sex is not uh, spiritual or the way it's often translated is Paul simply making a statement about um, sexual immorality and uh, premarital sex. But this is actually the statement that the Corinthians have, uh, have been promoting. He says, concerning the things which you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That was a sort of a slogan that was going around because of the reaction to the licentiousness and the sexual uh, licentiousness in, and sexual lasciviousness in Corinth, that there were those who were operating on an ascetic reaction, and they were saying that all sex is somehow bad. It's just better to be, to be celibate 
Uh, it's more spiritual to be celibate. So they were practicing celibacy in marriage. That is why Paul goes on to address the fact that it is important for uh, the husband and wife within marriage to have an ongoing uh, sexual relationship as part of the celebration of their love for one another. Now, that's the first first seven verses. Then in verse 8, he changes, and he's going to address the issue to, to different classes of people in the congregation. They had the same kind of people in that congregation as we do here. Some of you have never been married. Some of you have been married, and your spouses have gone to be with the Lord. Others of you are divorced. Some of you are divorced and remarried. And so Paul addresses each of these groups, and he says it's good for them to remain even as I. Now, this is the drumbeat of this whole chapter, is that Paul is taking a statement, it's good for them to remain even as I. Now, it would be real easy to take that statement and, and blow that out of proportion and misinterpret that statement. And there would be, it would be easy to take that as sort of an absolute, never change whatever status you're in. And Paul's not saying that either. Uh, what we're going to see in our section in 17 through 2023 20, is that, that there, there's the same problem then as you have now. People haven't changed a whole lot. It doesn't matter whether you're in 1st century Corinth or probably 5th century Athens or, or uh, 10th century B.C. Jerusalem or 21st century America. Most people think somehow life will be better if my circumstances were just different. If I had more money or better job, just think how I could give to the church. If I had more money or better job, just think what kind of service I could be. If I didn't have to work so hard, if I had a different job and didn't have to work 70 hours a week, I could really uh, serve the Lord better. Maybe I need to uh, quit my job, go find something else, go do something else and serve the Lord. And I'm not saying that that may not be a legitimate thing, but see, too many people get the idea that, that happiness lies in a change of circumstances. And what Paul is countering here is that spirituality and happiness does not lie in a change of circumstances. So he's going to reiterate this statement about staying in your present condition, maintaining the status quo, and he will hit that point again and again as we go through this chapter. Of course, you can always tell that, also notice that there would be a tendency to overreact to part of what he says when he says it would be good for people to remain as I am, that is, single as opposed to married, that you can almost hear the wheels turning in some folks' heads saying, you know, if I didn't have a wife or if I didn't have a husband, I could, I could go on the mission field and serve the Lord. If, if, my, if my wife was, was, was a believer instead of an unbeliever, if my, uh, or if my husband was a believer instead of an unbeliever, then I could serve the Lord in some other capacity. You can hear somebody saying, gee, Paul's got the gift of apostle, and or he, you see someone who has the gift of pastor teacher and say, I could do that only if my circumstances were different. So let's dump the spouse and go serve the Lord while I'll have more time to, to serve the Lord. You can hear that rationalization. And so Paul is going to be hitting that point as well. No, no, no. Stay in your present situation. So then in verse 10, he addresses uh, the issue of, of divorce, and he addresses three different groups of people. He addresses those who are be- believers in a marriage where there are two believers. Then he addresses those that are 
married to uh, an unbeliever. He starts off with the unmarried and widows in verse 8, then the married believers, two believers in verse 10, and then an unbeliever to a believer in verse 12. And he establishes the principles there. And I just want to review those uh, six principles of review. First of all, point number one, in a believer-believer marriage, where both husband and wife are believers, the principle is a believer is not to leave or initiate divorce. But if that is necessary, and um, then they are to remain unmarried or seek reconciliation. So he recognizes the fact that there are legitimate reasons where separation or divorce are necessary. And last time I made the point that there are there are differences of culture, there are differences of law even in the United States. There are some places where you can have a legal separation that does not allow remarriage or put the separated parties at at financial risk or obligation uh, to to the other. You know, there's always cases you hear about where one person leaves and takes the credit card and runs up twenty thousand dollars worth of debt, and then in, when the courts get it, the person who was left gets saddled with the debt. And so this is um, one of the things that uh, we have to recognize is that the concept of separation and divorce as it was practiced in Rome in terms of legal obligations, financial obligations, is different from what it is in the United States. So he's, he's really addressing the fact that if you have two believers and one person leaves, that is the person who is initiating the divorce, the person who is initiating the separation, that that person being the guilty party is not to remarry. Now, we have to also recognize that in our era when people play a lot of psychological games and are involved in a lot of manipulation, that there are circumstances when the person who physically moves out or the person who is the one who who actually uh, files the divorce is not the one who's really initiating the breakup in the marriage. There can be a number of circumstances, and I've seen these in marriage counseling circ- situations throughout the years, where one person doesn't really want to be saddled with that responsibility. So what they do is they make it so unbearable for the other person that the other person finally has to leave and finally does leave, and for financial reasons, to protect the children, whatever it might be, is the one who files for divorce. But in in terms of real culpability for ending the marriage, that culpability lies on the other person. So don't fall into a trap. We have evangelicalism. There's so much superficiality about the Christian life that the person who uh, well, it doesn't matter what the circumstances were. If you're the one who actually filed for divorce or if you're the one who physically left, well, that means that you're the one who is at fault. And that's just uh, that's just garbage. And we, there's also another trap that, while I'm on this subject, another trap that superficial evangelicals get into, and that is that because the husband is the leader in the home and the spiritually responsible party in the home, that no matter what happens, no matter uh, what the circumstances may be, if uh, the marriage fails, it's the husband's responsibility. And of course, the problem with that is it ignores the fact that the that the wife can has her own volition and she can go negative, she can reject doctrine, she can get involved in. Uh, I've seen all kinds of things over the years where where uh, uh, wives have just uh, the, the husband for all to all 
intents and purposes, was doing the best job he could, but for some reason she just wasn't satisfied or she wanted something else in life or she got into some sort of weird religious beliefs, and so um, she leaves, and you can't blame the husband. Now, there are certainly cases where where you can. I'm not saying that there are no cases, but you have to look at each case individually. Don't fall prey to simple, superficial solutions and um, trying to assign guilt. In fact, no one at all should try to be in a position of assigning guilt or responsibility for the breakup of somebody else's, somebody else's marriage. So the first principle, in a believer-believer marriage, the believer is not to leave or initiate divorce, but if that is necessary, and there may be circumstances of abuse, there may be the legitimate, of course I'm recognizing the legitimate exception that Jesus mentions in Matthew of of, uh, immorality, then uh, that of course would allow for remarriage. But there are other circumstances that don't necessarily allow uh, for the person who's initiating to, to remarry and so uh, if they leave, they just can't live with the other person, personality conflicts, whatever it might be. They are to remain unmarried or to seek reconciliation. That um, person who, who initiates the divorce is not uh, given the, the freedom to, to uh, just leave and remarry. Second principle we saw that in a believer-unbeliever marriage, where one one is a believer and the other is not a believer, that the believer is not to leave or initiate divorce on the basis of the spiritual status of the unbeliever. Now, you have two different circumstances that can produce this. First, you have somebody who is in reversionism, somebody who is just ignorant of the Scriptures, or somebody who is in rebelliousness to the Scripture, and they get involved in a relationship with an unbeliever. They start dating an unbeliever and then they get married, and then somewhere down the line, God finally gets their attention, and they realize they married the wrong person. And what the Scripture says is, uh, no, you can't go back. You stay as you are. Don't reverse the situation. Two wrongs don't make a right. You, as a believer, are to stay in the marriage. It doesn't matter uh, what the spiritual status of the other person is. But if they initiate, if they say, well, I'm not going to be married to a Christian, then um, that's fine. Then they can leave, and you are no longer bound in that marriage. Uh, For the most part, the Scripture is teaching that the presence of you as the believer in that marriage is the basis for blessing by association. That's what Paul means when he says the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. That is, they are sanctified. And the point there is just, it's not that they're saved. It's not that they become spiritual. It is simply that there is, because of their being involved in a relationship with a believer, there is a basis for blessing by association. Third point is that if the unbeliever in that union initiates divorce, then the believer is no longer bound by the marriage contract and is free to to remarry. If the unbeliever initiates divorce, then the believer is no longer bound by the marriage and is free in relationship to, to that marriage contract and can remarry. The fourth point is that this principle also applies 
to the believer in the believer-believer marriage who has a spouse who initiates the divorce, who leaves, who deserts, and then that person as the innocent party is no longer bound by the marriage and is also free to remarry. But the guilty party is the one who is not free to remarry. Point number five, the principle underlying this entire section focuses on the problem of the grass is greener syndrome. Somehow we always think that if we change our circumstances, change the people around us, or change our environment, that we will be better people, we'll be happier people, we'll be more spiritual. The problem is that in 90% of the cases, the problem is not the environment, it's not the people, it's not the circumstances. The problem is that it is the way we interact with our circumstances, with the problems and the people around us. And people have developed from the time they're children certain ways in which they handle adversity, difficult or unpleasant circumstances or people. And until we get to the point where we realize that our happiness is not dependent on people, circumstances, or events, you will just leave one set of unpleasant circumstances, jump over the fence, and realize that sooner or later you're going to get another set of unpleasant circumstances. And the problem isn't the circumstances. It's how you are choosing to to respond and react to those unpleasant circumstances. And I've seen people go through marriage after marriage after marriage or job after job after job or circumstance after circumstance, move from here, move there, every couple of years they have to reinvent themselves simply because they can't understand the principle that it's not the circumstances, people, or events. It's them. They do not have really, they're not applying doctrine in their own thinking and in their own life, and until they learn that happiness is dependent upon a relationship with the Lord and application of doctrine, and that allows you to make it through any and all circumstances, no matter how horrible, no matter how unpleasant, no matter how adverse, uh, they will never, ever be happy, and they'll just continue to uh, become ingrained in this uh, negative habit pattern, this habit pattern of rejecting doctrine, and looking to circumstances and people for happiness. And then kind of a concluding comment, point number six, always remember that in marriage there are two people with two volitions. It only it takes two people to make a marriage work, but it only takes one person to destroy it. Now, after outlining these and addressing the different people in different marriage situations in verses 10 through 16... Paul then shifts gears in verse 17 through 24, and here he is going to reinforce the principle that underlies the entire discussion, and that is that spirituality and happiness is not dependent on circumstances. Spirituality and happiness is not dependent on circumstances. You see, whenever you say... Now, you get this principle down. Whenever you say that if I had a different job, then I could be happy, you have just said your happiness and your stability is totally dependent on something outside of your control. And you have just put yourself into an emotional slavery. As soon as you say, I would be happy if I had a different spouse, 
You have just put your emotional stability and happiness in the hands of another person, and you have become their slave. When they're good, you're happy. When they're not, you're not happy. You're basically saying, I'm going to put my emotional stability and happiness completely at your disposal, and when you're up, I'm up. When you're down, I'm down, and therefore I'm just going to be your little emotional slave and puppet. We have to recognize that to the degree that we grant circumstances and people the power of making us happy and stable to that degree we are enslaving ourselves to people and circumstances people and circumstances are never the source of happiness and stability only our relationship with God when we look to God he is the rock of our salvation he is immutable he never changes then it doesn't matter what our circumstances are Now, granted, we go through some pretty miserable circumstances in life. There are all kinds of things that happen. Everybody has different things that happen to them. And if we believe in a sovereign God that is in control of the circumstances in our lives, then we must conclude that whatever the circumstances are in your life, and some people go through, I I, I see folks who go through some horrible health problems. And I just thank God that's not me. Apparently, the Lord realizes that if he put me through those things, it wouldn't be producing whatever it is he's going to produce. And I'm sure there are people who look at my life and go, well, I just thank God I don't have to go through the problems that he goes through because uh, that would break them. God designs the adversity in our lives because he is producing the character of Christ in us, and he knows exactly, he knows exactly what pressure points affect each one of us the most so that it's going to put us in that circumstance to handle the situation through the application of doctrine. So don't get in the idea that, well, look at somebody else and say, well, you know, their life just looks so great. You know, they just don't go through these things. You never know. I have come to understand over my life, and I'm sure if you reflect on it a little bit, you'll recognize this that every single person I've ever known in life, once you get to know them, you realize that sooner or later they have gone through some level of extreme adversity. Now, you may not know that. Some people may never talk about that. But it's amazing how many folks you'll meet who seem like they have their life all together. And I remember uh, a few years back I was pastoring a church, and there were folks that got the idea somehow that uh, there were certain people that, well, you know, they've never had any real adversity in life, and that's why why they're able to have this, this uh, Christian life, but it's really superficial because they haven't had the problems that, I, that I've gone through. You know, and nobody knows the problems I've seen. And, um, and the thing is, they didn't realize that, that in, with this one particular couple, they had had a child die in infancy, and they had gone through uh, a number of different traumatic situations early on in their uh, in their life, but they didn't talk about it all the time. They didn't bring that out and share it with everybody, which is what uh, you know some people think you have to do, but that's that's a wrong attitude. And so we tend to paint superficial pictures of some people who seem to be doing well in their Christian life, and we think, well, you know, that's great for them, but they haven't gone through what I'm going through. Well, that's don't ever deceive yourself with that kind of thinking. Uh, most people I know have gone through some pretty hor- horrific things at one time or another, and just because they don't talk about it, just because they they don't wear it on their shirt sleeve, doesn't mean it, it wasn't there, doesn't mean it wasn't uh, significant, it wasn't uh, a major test for them. The fact that they are where they are, though, demonstrates 
the power and the sufficiency of doctrine and grace. And there are others who are still struggling to learn that. And so uh, they, they tend to want to justify their own inability to trust God uh, in their circumstances. So the key idea here is that spirituality and happiness, the ability to serve the Lord, is not, any of these factors are not dependent on personal circumstances. So Paul is going to address two issues in this Two issues really underlie these next seven or eight verses. And the first is the problem of status quo, that people think that if I'll just change my circumstances, that I'll be happy. And the other is a problem of time, a problem of time. And that is that too often we get impatient and we think that, well, I want things to change, and, and uh, I want it to change now. You get in a marriage situation where you're going through some tension, some difficulty. You think you just can't survive, and it may go on for 5, 10, or 15 years. But if you stick with it, I mean, if it's not some place where your life is being threatened or under certain other circumstances, and you stay with it, the long-term consequences spiritually can be incredible. And see, we live in an age where we want everybody to change and straighten up and solve whatever problem is going on in their soul tomorrow. And we sometimes we have to stick with it for a long period of time and don't, as I pointed out last time, don't fall into this subjective trap that is so typical of our self-absorbed culture and say, well, you know, God wants me to be happy. I don't read that anywhere in the Scriptures. What I read is that God wants you to be obedient God wants you to trust him in the midst of circumstances and not to put place your happiness or look to your circumstances as a source of your happiness. There are many circumstances, many situations in life where we will endure uh, jobs, where we will endure bosses, where we will endure people in authority over us, where we will endure marriage situations, where we might endure uh, health situations that are completely outside of our control, and we might have to stay in that horrible circumstance for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, but God has designed that circumstance to teach something and to provide an environment for the application of doctrine. And we always fall prey to say, well, why would God allow such and so to happen to such a wonderful person you know, I always, when I, when I start getting into this trap of self-absorption, which we all do, I frequently think of my mother. My mother had a, was a very beautiful young woman, and when, and when she was about 26 years old and about to give birth to me, she came down with polio, and she was basically trapped in her body for the rest of her life and in paralysis. And, and we can fall into this subjective trap and say, well, why would God allow something like that to happen to such a wonderful person? She was a believer. She was positive to, to doctrine. She was applying doctrine. You know, all of these other things. Why would God bring that and allow that to happen in their life? Never ask those questions. As soon as you start asking those questions, you're just on your road to, to a self-absorbed pity party, and you're going to end up doubting God. But, see, God is omniscient. And God knows exactly what is best for each one of us. And we may never fully understand why we are in those horrible 
adverse circumstances until we're face to face with the Lord. We have no idea how that is going to impact any number of, of different areas in life. So never fall prey to this, this question, why would God let this happen? And Oh, if God really wants me to be happy, so therefore I've got to change my circumstances, change the people, change my present situation. And that is exactly what Paul addresses starting in verse 17, where he says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. Now he's going to reiterate this principle at the, at the end of this section in verse 24 where he says, Brethren, let each one remain with God. Notice he's emphasizing that spiritual condition. Let each one remain with God in that condition or state in which he was called. He prefaces this discussion with this point. It's, it's um, what is called in, in uh, literary terms an inclusio. For those of you who did any kind of, uh, were, were in the military and did any kind of artillery practice, it's called bracketing. You hit one side and you hit the other side, and it includes everything in between. And that's how he starts it off. He's, he wants to drive this principle home. And he states it in verse 17, again in the middle of the discussion in verse 20, and again at the end. Don't miss the point. Don't look elsewhere for your happiness, but stay in the circumstances you're in until the Lord moves you on. Stay where you are until the Lord moves you on. Don't get involved trying to manipulate the circumstances, trying to push things along, trying to hurry things up, trying to create what you think is the right situation for your happiness and your spirituality. Stay where you are because that's where the Lord put you and He has a ministry for you right there in those circumstances. And don't get your eyes on next year or five years from now or ten years from now or some other people or some other circumstance for your happiness. So he starts off and he says, As the Lord has assigned to each one, and here is the uh, aorist active Indicative of the Greek word merizo, which means to divide or distribute. Merizo means to divide or distribute. Looks like this in the Greek. M-E-R-I-Z-O. And it means to, to divide up, to categorize, to distribute. And what it emphasizes is that God has a distinct plan for each and every believer. God has one set of circumstances for one believer over here. He has another set of circumstances for another believer over here. And he has another set of circumstances over here. And don't get caught up in the trap of looking at somebody else's life and thinking, oh, if I could only be like them then I would have happiness, I could be successful spiritually, and I could, uh, I could really grow in the Lord if I just had another set of circumstances. So he emphasizes that, he says, uh, only, and that's a fairly good translation, only, uh, it, it, actually in the Greek it's a, a may, which has the idea of, of accept. It's, and it's emphasizing the fact that he's making a point, except as the Lord has assigned to each one. So each person has their own uh, plan. God has a particular set of circumstances for them. And then it says, as God has called each, 
actually what it says is uh, walk in each situation as God has called each individual. So the command here, present active indicative, from peripateo, which emphasizes the lifestyle. Peripateo, P-E-R-I-P-A-T-E-O. Present active imperative. Remember, a present imperative emphasizes a habit pattern. So this is the idea of walk. It's the same word that's used for walking by the Holy Spirit, which is uh, the key to the spiritual life in Galatians 5.16. As each one, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, let him walk. Now that we have one more word to, to cover here, and that is the word called. Called from the Greek kaleo, K-A-L-E-O, and this refers to the operation of the Holy Spirit in making the gospel clear at the point of salvation when the believer puts his faith alone in Christ alone. This is how Paul has used this so far in the epistle. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, he states, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is used here, and in, in this phrase is God has called each. It's a perfect active indicative. And a perfect tense verb focuses on completed action, action that's completed in the past and is emphasizing present results from that past action. So in an extensive perfect, the emphasis is on a completed, the completion of the action as opposed to the ongoing results. And here he's talking about the fact that you were called, God called you into a saving relationship with him, and as a result of that, you now are in your present circumstances. So it's focusing on what happened in the past, whatever those circumstances were, stay in those circumstances. Now, don't take that too far. So you have to be so careful in this ch- chapter not to take the, the general principles and, and make it a, a, a rule without taking into account the whole context. See, the context is he's talking about uh, certain circumstances, specifically marriage. Remember, he just got through saying, now I wish everyone was single as I am because then you could really give more time to serve the Lord. So part of what he's saying here is if God called you when you, and he's going to come back to this in uh, verse 26 and 27, if you were, if you were single when you were, were saved, well, stay that way. If you were married, stay that way. If you were divorced, stay that way. He's not stating this as a definite law. He is saying don't think that you have to change your circumstances in order to be more spiritual or to, to serve the Lord. He's not offering absolutes that you can't ever change. Uh, your circumstance, but he is saying don't look to changing it as the as a solution to problems, as a solution to happiness, or a solution to spirituality, which is apparently what they were doing in the Corinthian congregation. As each God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, let him walk, live inside the plan of God, and don't seek to change everything. Uh, wait on the Lord, and when it's time for things to change, believe me, the Lord will kick you through that door without any help uh, from you. In fact, what I have learned in life is to try to run as far as I can away 
from trying to manipulate any circumstances so that when uh, that promotion comes or when the Lord moves me, that I, it's, it's clear that I could have done nothing else and I can sit back and say, well, I certainly did nothing to promote that. I did nothing to bring that about. Uh, it just happened. That's one of the reasons we take the positions we do with regard to the tape ministry. We're not out there trying to use a lot of salesmanship principles to promote the ministry, to develop a tape ministry, or anything like that. It is totally up to the Lord. We just put the material out there. We have a website, and the growth that we have seen over the last four years is just incredible for a small little congregation out here in the cornfields of Connecticut. We are seeing our tapes go all over the world and having an incredible impact in the lives of, of hundreds of people. There are probably five times more people out there listening to tapes, five or six, maybe more, than ever darken the door of this congregation. And uh, this congregation provides the anchor through which, so, or on the basis of which, so many people in this nation are getting consistent teaching of God's Word, and it is, uh, as for me, in fact, I'm often quite humbled when I hear and get emails and hear the response of people and how uh, the teaching impacts their life in various different, different uh, difficult circumstances. What Paul is saying is stay where you are. If you were in business, stay in business. Every now and then you'll find somebody who, uh, who, who they, they come to know the Lord and they're in their late 20s and they're in business. They've got a particular job and all of a sudden they say, well, I want to go serve the Lord on the mission field. Well, that may be where the Lord's taking you eventually, but don't just get this simple idea and get excited. You're a young believer. You need to spend some time growing and maturing, learning doctrine before you make those kinds of changes. Uh, stay where you are. Don't get this superficial idea that, well, now that I'm saved, I ought to go be in full-time Christian service. Every single believer is in full-time Christian service from the instant of their salvation. Some of us are in professional Christian service. Others are not, but everyone is a full-time missionary from the instant of salvation. Everyone is in full-time spiritual service as a believer priest from the instant of salvation. And that does not mean that you should change your circumstances in order to be able to uh, have some sort of ministry. You can have it where you are no matter what those circumstances are, uh, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're a slave, or whether you are wealthy. That is the point, and that is the direction that, that uh, Paul is going in this passage. Now, in verse 18, he is going to apply this principle to the area of uh, religious background and ethnicity. Religious background and ethnicity. We have two basic illustrations of the principle here as it applies to the congregation at Corinth. The first has to do with, uh, with uh, spiritual heritage or ethnicity, the, the ethnic problem. And the second has to do with the social problem. So the verses 18 and 19 address the ethnic problem and the spiritual heritage problem. Now you have two circumstances here. You have, first of all, an individual who is called while they're circumcised. That would relate to the Jew. He became saved while he was uh, circumcised, emphasizing his. at that time he was uh, actively involved in applying the Mosaic Law. And on the other hand, you would relate to a Gentile who did not have the spiritual heritage 
of a Jew, and he's uncircumcised, and he might think as a result of the legalist that, gee, I need to, I need to be circumcised and, and uh, enter into some of the uh, Jewish ritual in order to have a little more uh, spiritual blessing. Now, I'm not sure exactly what was going on in terms of this first problem, and I don't want to get into a lot of details. It'll probably scare some of you. But apparently there was a major problem with Jews in a Gentile culture. The first problem uh, is that they, they had Jews who had been following the law, they had been circumcised as an infant, signifying their identification with the Abrahamic covenant. And they now were saved. They understood the principle that there was no longer a spiritual distinction between Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. And so they, they thought, well, I don't want this sign of circumcision. On top of that, there was a greater problem, which was probably pressuring some of them, and that was that there was a... A large uh, amount of anti-Semitism in the Roman Empire, and this goes back, uh, and the Jews were were having to deal with this as far back as the days in the 2nd and 3rd century B.C. when they were under the thumb of Antiochus Epiphanes and his harsh anti-Semitic decrees in Judea. And ever since that day, there are references to it in in 1st Maccabees, uh, Josephus mentions it, uh, Pliny mentions it. There are several uh, references to the fact that they somehow developed a procedure to reverse circumcision. Now, I don't even want to think about that. But in a culture like you had at that time, in a culture at that time where you had public baths and uh, where you exercised, you went down to the gymnasium and you exercised in the nude, it became obvious to one and all who was Jewish, who the Jewish males were, and who the Gentile males were. And that always reminds me of the story about the uh, when they began to develop the modern Olympics back in the late 1800s. They had not had uh, any Olympic athletic competitions since uh, the days of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And so the uh, some of the scholars who were trying to... Uh, re-energize and give rebirth to the Olympic Games were uh, first setting everything up. The first time they ever went out to compete, they, the, the, the men's team all came trotting out of the dressing room without anything on and uh, in front of the crowd and everybody, and that was the last time they did that. They were just trying to recover things the way they were in the old Greek Empire. But it was obvious to one and all who was Jewish and who wasn't, and so there was a social stigma attached to the Jews, and if you wanted to advance socially, economically, get into certain positions uh, in the empire, then you would not want it known that you were a Jew, and so there was a certain amount of pressure perhaps that, oh, now that I'm a believer in Jewishness doesn't matter, can I reverse this so nobody will know I'm a Jew, and I can... uh, I can get out there and have a and, and be promoted in society, be promoted in, in my job, and therefore be able to serve the Lord in a greater capacity. So there were there were Jews who were seeking to reverse their circumcision so that they could have a, a better shot at so, social promotion or economic promotion. And then there were were on the other hand Gentiles who were under the pressure of the uh, legalism of the Judaizers, and remember we studied them extensively in our study of Galatians, 
And these were the ones who said, well, it's great that you're saved as a Gentile, but if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want everything that God has for your life, if you really want the full blessing of God, then what you need to do is to be circumcised so that you are uh, aligned with the Abrahamic covenant, and then you can be super spiritual. So the Judaizers introduced the legalistic principle to the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised in order to be spiritual. And uh, Paul is, of course, uh, negating this whole principle here, where he says, If uh, you were called, that is, if you were circumcised when you were saved, let him not become uncircumcised. Uh, if anyone was called while they were uncircumcised, let him not be circumcised. And then he makes the point in verse uh, verse 19, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And here he's stating that circumcision or uncircumcision no longer has spiritual significance. It did in the Old Testament for the Jews because it signified that they were uh, in relationship with God under the Abrahamic covenant, and it was commanded in passages such as Genesis 17:10 to 14, Genesis 17:23 to 27, and Exodus 4:24 to 26. But there's a new situation in the church age. In the church age, because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, your spirit, your, your ethnicity is no longer a spiritual factor. It was in the Old Testament. God was working through the Jews specifically. But in the church age, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave, in, in the body of Christ. Now the purpose, now that's saying, not saying that these ethnic backgrounds are completely wiped out, but they are no longer determined, or they're no longer determinative for one's spirituality. Remember in the Old Testament, if you were a Gentile, that is uncircumcised, if you were a woman, or if you were a slave, you did not have access into the inner parts of the temple. Therefore, your access to God ritually was limited unless you were a Jewish, an, an adult Jewish male and free. So now in the body of Christ, these are not issues for spirituality. We all have e- equal access to God the Father. We all have equal opportunities to grow and advance uh, spiritually. So the issue is not circumcision. Galatians 6.15, Paul says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The issue is your relationship to Jesus Christ. Now remember, there are two major issues for the church-age believer. First of all, salvation. Salvation answers the question, what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. The issue for every single human being is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you have salvation. You become a new creature in Christ. And God does at least 40 different things for you at the instant of salvation, 39 of which are irreversible, one of which is reversible, and that's the filling of the Spirit. And that has to do with the spiritual life. So the second major issue for you after you're saved is what is your relationship to God the Holy Spirit? 
If you are in fellowship with God the Holy Spirit, then you are walking by the Spirit and you're advancing in your spiritual life and spiritual growth. But if you're not in right relationship to God the Holy Spirit, then you're in carnality and you are in spiritual reversal and you are uh, going to come under tremendous divine discipline. So the Scripture says that, that Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. And here, in context, it is to let him walk in the condition or situation God called him in, which takes us back to Galatians 5.16, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. What makes you spiritual is not your circumstances. It's not whether you're Jew or Greek. What makes you spiritual is walking by God the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 20, Paul reiterates his principle, let each man remain in the condition in which he was called. Don't seek to change the status quo to somehow make you happier or make you uh, more spiritual or thinking that somehow this will make you a better Christian. You are to consider the circumstances that you were in when you came to salvation. It's not focusing on a calling in the sense of a vocation, in the sense of a job or career, but in whatever those circumstances were. And the context, of course, is talking about whether you're married or single, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Circumstances or situations in your life may remain unchanged, but it is your relationship to the Holy Spirit and your attitude toward those circumstances that's important. Paul is now going to apply to what many today, especially in the United States, would consider to be one of the most horrible social aspects of the Roman Empire. But I want you to notice how Paul deals with this. In verse 21, he says, Were you called while a slave? Now, if you listen to a lot of people in America, you would think that what Paul would follow that with is, Well, leave your master. Throw off those chains. Uh, let's abolish slavery. That's a horrible circumstance. But Paul doesn't do that. And here, here's a principle. It's, this is a crucial principle that has been completely missed and, and, and handling this whole issue of slavery. And it's also an important issue when it comes to the marriage, I think the marriage and divorce question. And that is that God does not regulate sin. God prohibits sin. So if we come to slavery, if slavery is inherently evil, then God would prohibit it. But God doesn't prohibit it. What he does is he regulates it. Now, the application for that in the context is, has to do with the marriage and divorce question. If divorce is always a sin and remarriage is always a sin, then God would just pro- prohibit it. He wouldn't regulate it. Yet you have regulations in, the De- in Deuteronomy 24. You have regulations in Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. You have regulations where, where in Ezra, uh, when, when the Jews returned to the land and they married Gentile wives, God told them to divorce those wives. So if these things are inherently sinful, God would just prohibit it completely. But the principle is that God does not regulate sin. He prohibits it. And uh, it's in the regulation that we understand that there are some circumstances where slavery is, the way it's practiced, is inherently evil, and in other circumstances where slavery is not inherently evil. And as slavery was practiced both in uh, in 
ancient Israel and in the Roman Empire, there was the opportunity for the slave to better himself and to buy his freedom and to work his way out. It wasn't the same kind of chattel slavery that was practiced uh, later on in the 19th century uh, throughout Europe, throughout uh, Islamic countries. In fact, the Arabs, more than anybody else, the Arabs and the Muslims are more responsible for the enslavement of of Africans than any other people because it was the Arabs and Arab tribes and Arab slave traders who went in and captured and took these slaves and bought them as when they were captured by one African tribe or another in one of their tribal wars the the Arab slave traders would then sell them to the west it was only on the basis of evangelical christians coming out primarily out of Britain, the, the, the Christian influence in the U.S. was pathetic. It was liberal, non-biblical Christians, and it produced the Civil War. And it was based on arrogance and works and had nothing to do with the truth. But in Britain, the slave trade was ended by men like William Wilberforce and Granville Sharp and other evangelical believers who operated on a grace basis, and they took them years to bring about the legislation to end the slave trade. But when it ended, it did not produce the kind of disruptions you had in the United States. And uh, it's only as a result of Christianity that slavery was ever challenged or stopped anywhere in, uh, in all of history. But the scriptures do not unilaterally prohibit slavery. In fact, what Paul says is if you are a slave and you get saved, go right back. Now you are a new person, you have a new attitude, you can serve your master in a whole new way, and you go glorify God in those circumstances. See, people want to rationalize and say, well, if I'm a slave, I'm completely restricted by this master, and I can't do certain things. I could certainly serve the Lord a lot better if I could just leave and I could go be a missionary. Goodness, let's rationalize. You hear people do this all the time. You know, God called me to be a pastor, so now I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I'm going to leave this. I'm going to do make this bad decision just so I can go be a pastor. And you can hear that from some slave. Gee, I've got the gift of pastor-teacher. I need to go across the Roman Empire and go pastor a congregation over in Ephesus somewhere. And so uh, slavery is wrong, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave and go serve God in a better circumstance. But Paul says, no, stay where you are because that's where God's put you. And until God clearly moves you out, Stay there, and that's the point of verse 20, uh, 22. It says if you're uh, 21 says if you're called while a slave, don't be concerned about it. In other words, he says don't worry about it. Forget about the circumstances. That's not the issue. Stay there. Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, use that. If the Lord promotes you and you get an opportunity to be, be free, then take advantage of that. And then, obviously, the, the Lord is moving you somewhere else. But if you don't get that opportunity, then God is keeping you right where you are. So you just need to relax and be patient. That's the time factor. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Here's the issue. If you are called as a, as a, um, uh, while you're a slave, then you have liberty in Christ. Your circumstances can't hinder you from serving the Lord. doesn't matter what your marriage circumstance is. Some, some of you may think you're enslaved in a marriage. doesn't matter what your economic circumstance is. And believe me, there are forms of economic slavery such as Marxism in the old Soviet empire 
that are a billion times worse than any kind of chattel slavery ever practiced in the U.S. There's economic slavery, there's social slavery, there's all kinds of, uh, of slavery. And what Paul is saying is that when you become a believer, it doesn't matter what kind of restrictions you think are on you physically, you can still serve the Lord. Nobody can keep you from praying. Nobody can keep you from serving the Lord and glorifying God. Circumstances are not the key to spiritual growth and spiritual happiness. So he says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman, likewise he who is called while he is free is Christ's slave. You think you're free, but you are a slave to Christ. You've been bought with a price. Verse 23, you have been redeemed, therefore you are to serve God as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Your circumstances are still being controlled and determined by God, who is working in your life to produce spiritual maturity and Christ-like character. Remember, we were bought with a price, and 1 Peter 1.18 says that we were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold from our futile way of life inherited from our forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Because we have been bought with a price, we are in a master-slave relationship with Jesus Christ who is our authority, and we are to serve him. And then Paul concludes in verse 24 by saying, Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state where he was called. Stay where you are. Don't seek a change as the basis for happiness. Don't use change as thinking that somehow I can serve the Lord better, grow better, mature better uh, in, in some other circumstance. The circumstances aren't the issue. The issue is your volition right where you are and whatever those circumstances might be to serve the Lord, to take in the word, and to apply it as consistently as possible. No one has the ability to keep you from applying doctrine in your soul. No one can stop you from growing uh, spiritually. You can do that right where you are and just wait on the Lord. So remember the two key principles are Status quo, let God change the circumstances. And number two, be patient and let God change them in his timing and not try to force your timing on those changes with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to be reminded of these important principles that you are in control. You are the one who is working all circumstances together in our lives And your ultimate goal is to produce in us spiritual maturity, Christ-like character, that we might glorify you in time and in the angelic conflict. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their uh, spiritual condition, uncertain of their eternal destiny, who may not know if they've ever been called, that right now they can settle that issue. The issue the Scripture presents is that every human being is unsaved. Every single human being is a sinner and is spiritually dead, and the only solution is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, and that because they are paid, he offers us a free gift of eternal life, but we must accept his payment. All we have to do is to believe on him, to accept it as a free gift, to receive it as a free gift. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine what you're trusting in for your eternal salvation. If you're trusting in Christ alone, then God the Father knows what, you're, what you believe, what you're trusting in, and you have eternal salvation. 
If, on the other hand, you are trusting in ritual, trusting in works, trusting in uh, associations with certain churches or religious groups, then there is no salvation. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we do thank you for this time to study your word this morning. Pray that we would be challenged by the things we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.